0: Duke, in our Through the Bible, Book by Book, this third one of the Gospels, presenting Jesus as the Son of Man. And this, by the way, was our Lord's favorite title for himself. He used this of himself more frequently than he did any other title. He called himself the Son of Man. Uh... As you read the Gospel of Luke, you see, of course, that the one who's presented here is the same person of whom you read in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark. But in Matthew, the emphasis is upon his kingliness. Matthew is the Gospel of the king. And in Mark, you see him as the servant of God, uh, busy in his ministry, constantly giving of himself. But in Luke, the emphasis is quite different. The same person, but a completely different emphasis. And here it's the gospel of the Son of Man. Jesus, the man. And uh, his uh, essential manhood is constantly being set forth throughout this gospel. Now, the key to the gospel, and uh, that which forms a brief outline of the book, is found in Luke 19, verse 10. A very well-known passage uh, from our Lord's lips where he said himself, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Or as the uh, King James Version has it, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Which I think is really a little more accurate. Because he's not just talking about coming to save lost people. He's come to save that which is lost. Well, what's lost? Well, man is lost. You say it's men. No, it's man that's lost. The secret of manhood. That's the problem with the world, isn't it? We've lost the secret of our humanity. We don't know how to be what we were intended to be. And the whole dilemma of human life is that we still have deep within us a kind of racial memory of what we ought to be and what we want to be, but we don't know how to do it. Man has never forgotten that commandment of God that he's to subdue and master the earth. And... uh, Discover all its forces. And this is what drives him out continually in scientific endeavors to uh, unveil the secrets of nature. And master them and turn them to his own use. But we don't know how to be men. The secret of humanity is lost. Now this is what is meant in this phrase. The son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. That essential manhood. I remember reading some years ago of a group of astronomers who were gathered together discussing the progress in the science of astronomy. And uh, they were facing, of course, the many theories that have to do with the expanding universe and trying to explain some of the phenomena they were discovering out in the far reaches of space. And no one can work in that field without at times feeling something of the littleness of man. And feeling perhaps the full thrust of David's question in the 8th Psalm. When I consider the heavens, the works of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man? What is man? And in this group someone posed that question. Astronomically speaking, they said, what is man compared to the vastness of this incredible universe with its simply impossibly large distances and its great whirling bodies that are uh, thousands of times bigger than our sun in many cases? Astronomically speaking, what is man? And someone rose up and said, In a very quiet way, well, man is the astronomer. That is, the mind of man in his puniness is nevertheless coming to grips with these vast questions and issues. And uh, there you see something of the mystery of man. There's something unaccountable about man. One of the questions we're always puzzling about, in fact, we were discussing it at our home today around the dinner table is what's the difference between man and animals? What's the essential difference? We're aware there's a vast gap, but no one can quite put their finger on what it consists of. Now there's that deep and unexplainable mystery about man. And uh, it's this lost secret, this impenetrable mystery that our Lord came to reveal, and which is particularly set forth the gospel of Luke. Now take that sentence. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. There you have the divisions of the gospel of Luke. First, the Son of Man came. And in the opening three chapters of this letter, uh, the great physician is busy telling us how he came into the race. And then he came to seek... And the first part of his ministry is one of moving in uh, to the heart of humanity, penetrating into the emotions and thoughts and feelings of mankind, and discovering the innate uh, centers of human motivation, and putting his finger upon them, and mastering, showing his mastery over these areas. And then he moves on to, to save. Beginning with chapter 19, on through verse uh, from 28, on to the end of the section, he's moving up to the cross. You can see these divisions. The first three chapters uh, give to us the uh, entrance of the Lord, uh, closing with his genealogy, how he came into the race. Was made one of us, like unto his brethren. And then chapter 4 through 19, trace for us the... um, his ministry among men and especially beginning in chapter 9 verse 51 his move up to Jerusalem 951 says when the days drew near for him to be received up he set his face to go to Jerusalem that's the close of his ministry of of penetrating into the character and and uh, nature of man and now he's moving up to his work of of saving them And in chapter, uh, that journey up to Jerusalem occupies chapters 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. All of these are incidents 16, 17, 18 along the journey. And you don't find it completed until you come to verse 28 of chapter 19. We read, and when he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. He's still on the way. And that begins and introduces the last section where he comes to the Mount of Olives and then to the temple and then to Pilate's judgment hall and to the cross and to the tomb and to the resurrection day. Now, as you know, the, God, the author of this is Luke. Luke, the great physician, the companion of Paul. And uh, it's fitting that Luke should be the one to write this gospel of the manhood of our Lord. He's writing, as you see in his introduction, to another man, a Greek, whom we know little or nothing about, but uh, evidently who was a friend of Luke's. And he writes to him, and uh, I think it's uh, instructive to read this introduction of, of Luke to his gospel, he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things which have been accomplished among us, just as they were delivered to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely or accurately, from, for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus that you may know the truth concerning the things of which you have been informed. And here's his explanation for writing. Evidently, Theophilus was someone who had become acquainted with the Christian position, and Luke is now going to explain it all to him. Luke was a Greek himself, and he's writing to a Greek. And this is most interesting because the ideal of the Greek was the perfection of humanity. They sought constantly to uh, discover the, uh, the way to find perfect humanity. The perfection of the individual was the Greek idea. And it's this which is so fully unfolded here in the gospel according to Luke. There's one word here in chap- in his introduction that I, I want you to note particularly because it's obscured by the way it's usually uh, printed for us. Luke is writing about a person. Just as much as John was writing in his gospel about a person. And his person is the same one. And he uses the same name as John does. You remember how the gospel of John began? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Now notice this. Verse 2 as they were delivered to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Now, it's not capitalized here as it is in John. But there's no good reason why it shouldn't be equally as capitalized here as it is in the gospel of John. Same person. Here, evidently, the translators have thought he meant just the spoken word. But Luke is writing about the same one, the final word from God, revealing the mystery of manhood. Now, it's impossible, I think, to read the Gospel of Luke thoughtfully and instructively without noting some very remarkable similarities it has to the epistle to the Hebrews. I think this is very significant because it's my personal conviction that Luke wrote the God, the epistle to the Hebrews. At least he wrote it in its final form. It's my belief that Paul was the author of the, of the thoughts of Hebrew and that he probably wrote it in, in, in the Hebrew language and sent it to the Jews of Jerusalem. But Luke, wanting to have these same marvelous truths available to the Gentile world, translated it from Hebrew into Greek, and even perhaps paraphrased it more than actually literally translating it, so that much of his thought is embedded in it. Now this accounts for what scholars recognize immediately when they deal with the original languages, that the thoughts of Hebrews are Paul's, but the words and the language and the Greek is Luke's. And if that be true, then we have some explanation of what, uh, of, of some of the remarkable parallels here with the Gospel of Luke. Uh, in the, the message of Hebrews is, is to declare the amazing fact that Jesus Christ became a man in order that he might possess men. In order that he might enter into man. And if you remember that letter, it's built around the, uh, the symbolism of the old covenant. And especially the tabernacle in the wilderness. Now the tabernacle was God's picture of something. And the epistle to the Hebrews tells us this. It says that when Moses went up onto the mountain, he was given a pattern which he was to follow explicitly in making the tabernacle, which was a pattern of heavenly things. Now, that doesn't mean things off in space somewhere, but the realities that are invisible to us. That are, those are the heavenly things. And the tabernacle was to be a picture of that. Now, as you read that letter, you discover that the tabernacle is indeed a very remarkable picture of man himself. Recall that the tabernacle was built into three sections. There was the outer court into which uh, even the Gentiles could enter. Uh, it was available to everyone. And then there was a, uh, the, the building in the center divided into two, which was the holy place and the holy of holies. And uh, the, the sacrifices took place in the outer court the priest took the blood and carried it into the holy place where it was sprinkled upon the altar there. And then once a year, the high priest, and only under the most uh, uh, precise conditions, was allowed to enter behind the veil into the holy of holies. And apart from that single entrance, no one was ever permitted on pain of death to enter into the holy of holies. For there the mystery of the Shekinah was, the strange presence of God that dwelt in that sacred, awesome place. Now, what is all this a picture of? Well, if you read the epistle to the Hebrews carefully, you'll discover it's a picture of man. Man in his fallen state. That we are that tabernacle that God intended to dwell in. And that we have an outer court, a body, which is uh, made of the earth and puts us in touch with the earth and the things of material life around about us. And we also have a holy place, the soul, the place of of intimacy, uh, where uh, the intimate functions of our being take place. The strange uh, functions of our mind, our reason, our conscience, our memory, and all these mysterious things. It's very difficult to understand what takes place in the soul. And men have been struggling now for centuries to stu- study the psych, which is the Greek word for soul, psychology, psychiatry. These are the, uh, the, the attempts on the part of man to probe the mystery of the holy place. Ah, but then there's that other place, that holy of holies, behind the veil, impenetrable. We cannot enter there. We know it's, there's something more, something deeper, something underlying all the soulish aspects of our life. And it's interesting that some of the great thinkers today are recognizing this very fact. Some of the leaders of psychological thought are telling us we haven't, we haven't explained man yet when we deal only with the soul. There's something underneath. But we can't go into that. It's deep. It's, it's mysterious. It's impenetrable. It's behind a veil. But that's the place where God intended to dwell. And that is the intended center of human life. And that's the reason why men, uh, Are uh, uh, act as in a sense like intelligent animals and yet there's something mysterious reserved. Some area into which they cannot enter. Now the tabernacle is that picture. And in the gospel of Luke we're tracing now the coming of the one who at last penetrates into the secret place. Who enters into the spirit of man. Into the place of mystery. And rends the veil and opens it up that man might discover himself and all the secret and mystery of his being and fulfill himself. And you know that's what man everywhere is desperately looking for. There is nothing more exciting than the sense of fulfilling yourself. Achieving and realizing the possibilities of personality. That's what we're all striving for. But we've lost the key until that key is placed in our hand again by the Son of Man who came to explore and discover man. Now, this is the Gospel of Luke. And you can trace it through. First, he comes to the outer court. And in the first three chapters, we have him coming in. And there are three things that Luke records of him there. His virgin birth. We hear a great deal of this today. There are those who are openly denying the virgin birth, who even stand in uh, the pulpits and having taken a vow to defend the sacred truths of Christian faith, still openly deny these and turn against it. And they say the virgin birth is not important. But it's extremely important. It's supremely important. Uh, Luke tells us that the, and by the way, he was the great physician. He's the one who put his uh, physician's seal of approval on this remarkable biological mystery. Yet here came one into the race who was born of a virgin, who never knew a man, and yet had a son, and his name was called Jesus. And the wonder of that mystery is given in this simply, beautifully, artlessly uh, told story that, uh, that Luke presents to us and uh, there we have it linked with his human genealogy and you notice the difference between Luke's genealogy and Matthew's Matthew's goes back and traces him to the king, to David but Luke sweeps on back into the past and doesn't stop until he arrives at Adam, whom he calls the son of God the first man, the first Adam and he links him with the second Adam the gospel of man. The good news of the mystery, the solving of the mystery of man. Then the second item Luke gives us is the story of our Lord's presentation in the temple at the age of 12. And how he astounded the doctors with his ability to answer questions. The mental acumen of him. The, here is the, uh, the, the revelation of his amazing mental ability. The mind. Uh, presented to us as perfect, just as the body came perfect, sinless, through the virgin birth. So he's revealed as having now a mind that is perfect. And then this is followed by the temptation, uh, the story of the temptation in the wilderness, where he was revealed as perfect in the innermost recesses of the spirit. And that's followed then, of course, by the... the uh, the announcement of the baptism where he was pronounced to be, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then we see him passing into the holy place, out of the outer court now into this center of man's being and life and thinking. Whereas Hebrews tells us he was made like unto his brethren. And it begins with that amazing account as he stood in in the synagogue at Nazareth. And there was brought to him the gospel according to Isaiah. And he read it and found the place, remember, where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has anointed me to proclaim the gospel to the poor, to uh, preach liberty to the captives, to uh, open the eyes of the blind, and to uh, proclaim uh, deliverance to the oppressed. And uh, uh, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he's stating here what he has come to do. To enter into the poor and the oppressed and the blind and the captives and to set them free. And that's what he does then in the succeeding chapters. The whole story of those succeeding chapters is to see him moving into the, into the experience, the commonplace experience of man. And... Uh, setting these things before us. And this begins his journey to Jerusalem, as we've already traced in chapter 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be received up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he begins now to enter fully into the whole, into the soul of man. And then at last, in chapter 19, the verse I've already given to you, verse 28, we see him entering, preparing to enter as the great... High priest into the Holy of Holies of man, and to save that which has been lost for all these many centuries. You remember in the Holy of Holies, there were only two articles of furniture. There was the Ark of the Covenant with its, mis- with its mercy seat under the, cher- under the overarching wings of the cherubim, where God's Shekinah glory dwelt. And there was the altar of incense, which was uh, to uh, uh, which was the means by which the nation was to offer its praise up to God. The golden altar of incense, and these two are symbolic of that which is hidden in the very depths of man. The mercy seat, which speaks of his final, ultimate relationship between himself and God. And as you know, the scriptures tell us that it's only blood that can make that relationship acceptable. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And it was the blood upon the mercy seat that brought the forgiveness and the grace of God. And our Lord now prepares to be, to enter into that hidden spirit of man and offer his own blood, as we're told in Hebrews, that by, that he, that, uh, with his own blood, he entered once into the holy place, into the holy of holies. And this is what he's preparing to do as he comes to the close of his ministry here. And it's there that the that the altar of incense is, which speaks of the communication between man and God. The place of prayer. Prayer is the deepest function of the human spirit. There's nothing that goes any deeper than that. When you're driven to your knees in some time of despair or defeat or need, you discover that you're dealing with a very elementary basis, fundamental basis of your humanity. You cry out of the depths of your soul, out of the very depths of your spirit unto God. That's what prayer basically is. And it's there that our Lord enters into that that very foundational Area of human experience, and as you trace the account through, these are so familiar to us. You see him moving from the Mount of Olives down into the city, the cleansing of the temple, and then out uh, to the uh, to the upper room, and to the Passover feast, and uh, from there to the Garden of Gethsemane, and uh, then he to Pilate's judgment seat, and uh, from there, uh, out to the cross, followed by the mob, as they take him outside the city gates and nail him on the wall. And uh, as we come into the closing chapters, we learn this remarkable thing. Oh, and Luke tells us this. Verse 44, chapter 23. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land, until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Why? Why was the curtain torn? Because the Holy of Holies was opened up for the first time to the gaze of men. He ripped the veil. When he died, God ripped the veil wide open. He entered into the holy place, into the Holy of Holies. And the secret of man, the secret of humanity, was unveiled. And then we have the wonder of the resurrection morning. And the account that Luke tells us of those two men who were walking on the road to Emmaus. And this, and the stranger appeared with them. And he talked with them. Oh, the things he said. The most amazing things. As he opened to them the scriptures concerning the Christ and what had been predicted of him. And they said afterwards, when they knew who he was, they said, did not our hearts burn within us as he opened the scriptures to us along the way? Why? Why, a burning heart is a heart that's caught up with the excitement and the glory and the experience of fulfilled humanity. And that's where Luke ends his gospel. The secret is revealed. The man is possessed. The holy of holies has been entered in. And I don't think we'll, we can do better to close our study of this gospel than to turn to the epistle to the Hebrews and read these words from chapter 10. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary, By the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way which he opened for us through the curtain. That is, through his flesh. There's where we stand now. The secret of every human heart is open to the one who opens his heart to the Son of Man. To the one who can penetrate into the depths of the human spirit. And from there... Re-establish that relationship with God that makes a man what God intended a man to be. And the writer continues, Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. After all, when Christ has penetrated the human spirit, something's happened to you that no one can gainsay, no argument can uh, have any force against, and therefore stand fast, hold fast, without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. All the possibility of a fulfilled humanity is available to anyone now in whom the spirit of, of Christ dwells. All that you want to be, you can be in terms of love and good works. And the writer continues, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near. That gathers it up in one brief sentence all the strange mystery of the ages. All the remarkable questions that have been raised by philosophers and thinkers about the mystery of this race. Why do we act the way we do? Where are we heading? What's it all aiming at? And Luke has unveiled it to us in the gospel of the Son of Man. The man who unveiled man. Our Father, we pray that no one listening to us tonight here in sensing the uh, uniqueness of his own human personality shall fail to lay hold of this remarkable promise that only in Christ does the mystery of our being find any explanation. Only in him is the awesome darkness penetrated. Only in him is the veil rent and the holy of holies deep at the center of our being is unveiled to our startled eyes. Lord, we pray that we may, we who have have found him to enter in, who by means of death, who by the blood of the cross, by the death and resurrection and the ascension has entered into our life, That we uh, we may make ourselves more and more available to him. That all the fullness of his desire for us as mankind may be fulfilled in us. We ask in his name. Amen.